Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the toll the COVID-19 pandemic is taking on the pediatric population and what measures can be taken to reverse it. To examine this are Dr. Tina Tan of Northwestern University and Dr. Jason Newland with Washington University. Both are experts in pediatrics and infectious diseases. Thank you both for being here. And with that, I'm going to start with, with Dr. Tan this afternoon. Dr. Tan, more than 100,000 have died to COVID-19, some of whom are no doubt children. While research shows that children are affected less commonly than their adult counterparts, we continue to hear conflicting reports of the severity of COVID-19 as it relates to them. Can you shed light on this and on the reality the threat has to the pediatric population? Yeah, so we know that persons of any age can be infected with COVID-19 with children generally presenting with mild symptoms. However, studies have shown that infants under a year of age and children with underlying conditions are considered at greater risk for developing severe COVID-19 disease if they get the infection. And there has been a limited amount of testing performed in the pediatric population, primarily because many times infants and children may not meet the criteria for testing due to the milder symptoms. So we really don't know the true number of children that are infected. In a report that was put out of state-level COVID-19 data that was compiled by the American Academy of Pediatrics, what was found was that children represented about 3.7% of all confirmed COVID-19 cases and made up somewhere between 4.7% and 12% of the total tests that were performed in the United States. Children also accounted for up to 3.1% of the total reported hospitalizations and accounted for up to 0.7% of all COVID-19 deaths. So you can see that even though COVID-19 seems to be less common in children than in adults, based on the data, infants and children can be severely affected by COVID-19, resulting in hospitalizations and deaths. I'll just add, I, I think that, you know, the, we need more data, as uh, Dr. Tan just uh, kind of alluded to with the lack of testing as we get more testing. Though I think, number one, overall, children are going to be m- much more mildly impacted. And, and obviously, over the last three weeks or so, we have learned of the new multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that does seem to have some link to COVID-19 and illness in a a post-infectious like inflammatory syndrome that will add a lot more to the eventual story that is told uh, from this pandemic. And we will be discussing multi-system inflammatory syndrome in just a few minutes, Dr. Newland. At this time, I'd like to ask you about the clinical features, signs and symptoms of COVID-19. Do they differ in children and adults? So yeah, it does look look to be that uh, children do experience a different illness. While many or most will have a constellation of fever, cough, shortness of breath, fever definitely is less common in children than adults with suggesting of data between uh, potentially 50% or so. But when you look at those who are admitted, so those who have to be hospitalized, that would suggest the fever is a little higher being in about 60 to 70% of the cases. But overall, you can't expect to see fever. And I, when I say fever, I mean a temperature above 100.4 in children. Um, that, that's not as common. 
Additionally, it does appear that children have more of a GI symptom involvement. So in one study, it suggested about 15% will have vomiting or diarrhea. Uh, and I think we've all learned about some other manifestations seen in children like rash, changes potentially in the fingers and toes. The loss of sense of smell and taste has also been apparent in, in children. Um, but it is a little more subtle. And because they might show with just milder symptoms, um, I think the, this index of suspicion might have to be higher in children, though they're going to have milder disease. A follow-up now, Dr. Newland. What characterizes these signs in the pediatric population? You're, you're still going to look for things like fever, respiratory symptoms such as cough. They might have some of these other subtle things like vomiting and diarrhea. And I think most importantly is what are their what potential links have they had and have they been in areas potentially um, with a, a stronger link to COVID-19? Now, I say that with hesitation a little bit because as the disease prevalence in some areas are so much higher than others, that could be different and that your index of suspicion just has to be higher. Yeah, I completely agree with what Dr. Newland has said. I think because in the majority of cases, the symptoms tend to be milder, you definitely have to have a higher suspicion that these individuals do have COVID. Great points. Thank you both. We've been hearing a lot lately about multisystem inflammatory syndrome and Kawasaki disease in relation to COVID-19. Dr. Tan, how are these illnesses related? We know that in late April of 2020, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, was first described in the United Kingdom. And really since that time, cases have been reported in Spain and Italy, France, and then here in the United States. And to date, there have been over 200 children across the United States that have been diagnosed with MISC with five confirmed deaths. Now, these children are seriously ill with the involvement of multi-organ systems and have symptoms that mimic some of the findings seen in Kawasaki disease or toxic shock syndrome with a disease course that seems to suddenly worsen days after children have initially recovered from a possible COVID-19 infection. But the thing to remember is that MISC is a distinct syndrome that appears to be a post-infectious inflammatory process that is potentially associated with COVID-19 infection and is not related to Kawasaki disease or to toxic shock syndrome. I'd like to stay on this topic, Dr. Tan. What symptoms or complications do they share? So the symptoms that may be seen in both MISC and Kawasaki disease include things such as rash, fever, conjunctivitis, red crack lips, sometimes in large cervical lymph nodes, and hand and feet swelling. However, there are some very distinct differences, one of these being age. We know that MISC tends to occur in older children, with many reports showing a median age of around 11 years compared to Kawasaki disease, which occurs most commonly in those individuals under five years of age. We also know that MISC presents with very severe abdominal pain and other GI symptoms, which Dr. Newland mentioned, and little in the way of respiratory symptoms. And patients also have um, severe myocarditis or myocardial dysfunction with markedly elevated pro-BNP and troponin levels. However, in Kawasaki disease, what you tend to see is coronary artery dilation and aneurysms and much less in the way of myocarditis or myocardial dysfunction. We also know that MISC patients have a profound lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia with extreme elevations in ferritin levels and CRP. 
MISC also appears to be more common in the black population as compared to Kawasaki disease, which is more common in the Asian population. So you can see that the, these are very, very distinct, very different diseases that do not appear to be related to each other. Yeah, I would just add, I think what Dr. Tan is such a great overview, and it just it was just striking to me to see the amount of GI symptoms that have been associated with the cases that we've learned about so far in the literature. This high uh, incidence of vomiting and diarrhea in these children have been striking. How prevalent is this and how important is early diagnosis? We currently do not know what the prevalence of MISC is because we really started learning about this about a month ago. Every day there are more cases being reported and I think as time goes on we're going to learn a lot more from these cases. We'll get a better idea of what the prevalence is. Early diagnosis is important as this can be a very serious illness requiring admission to an intensive care unit and may be associated with some significant morbidity. So I think clinicians really need to be aware of the symptoms that may be associated with MISC and refer their patients accordingly. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Newland, are there special considerations when it comes to COVID-19 testing and the screening of children? So testing has been one of the most difficult challenges uh, that's faced all of us in regards to this COVID-19 pandemic. We've all been aware of the, the shortages or the difficulties in get testing to where we've had to put, one might say, gatekeeping criteria on preventing some from getting testing and only testing those with the most likely cause of COVID-19. That has definitely impacted our children throughout, our, throughout the U.S. and one might say even around the world in some areas. So are there spe special considerations? Um, I would say that we should be testing those who have COVID-19-like illnesses at this point in time in children. We should limit, the, or we should not limit, but we should be testing those individuals so that we do know those who have or are positive for this disease. And that matters for many reasons. Number one, if they are negative, though I do realize that in, for some that um, we worry about the, the sensitivity, that's only at around 80% with some reports, but in some low prevalence areas, a negative test can be, in most cases, be reassured that they're likely negative, getting people back into different activities as we move forward. Number one is we need to have testing available for children. That will help our pediatricians. That will help our communities as we start to talk about how we start engaging and doing more things with COVID-19. Yeah, I definitely agree with Dr. Newland. I mean, to this point, we really have not tested enough children, so we really don't know what the infection rate is. And as things start to reopen and as we start to think about re-engaging in different activities, it becomes very important to know whether or not some of these children are COVID-19 positive because they can serve as a major source of spread to other individuals. You both echo the sentiments we hear from many clinicians. Thank you for raising them. Can you discuss the various in and outpatient supportive care resources available to successfully diagnose and treat children presenting with symptoms associated with a severe case of COVID-19, Dr. Chan? Clinicians need to remember that even though the symptoms of COVID-19 do tend to be milder in children, there will be children who will have the classic symptoms and who will have severe disease that is similar to the disease that's being seen in adults, especially with regards to some of the respiratory symptoms and the pneumonias that can develop. 
With infants under one year of age and children with underlying conditions, clinicians need to remember that these individuals are at higher risk for developing severe disease if they get COVID-19 infections. Clinicians also need to be aware of the symptoms associated with MISC, and they need to refer these patients to a hospital setting where there is pediatric ICU care. Now, the CDC and the New York State Department of Health websites have information on the case definition and the diagnostic criteria of patients with potential MISC, and I would encourage um, clinicians to basically review some of this because it will give them a better idea of which patients may be developing MISC and which patients may be at higher risk for developing a severe case of COVID-19. The, the notion is going to have to be, as well as we move forward, that things are going to be changing rapidly as we learn about the best way of, of, number one, identifying those children with this highest risk, and then what are the best potential therapies uh, for Agreed. these children. And those things are going to be interesting as we go forward, as we're learning about remdesivir in adults. And I think one of the things I know, Dr. Tan and myself are, you know, worry about probably is the fact that, you know, children usually get put a little bit behind as we we, we look at these illnesses, and it, and it makes sense in this case where it's been more impactful on the adults. However, we're going to need pediatric treatment trials. We're going to need pediatric vaccination trials to make sure that the, the children are covered in the best way of treating this disease. For a lot of different reasons, children usually are not included in some of the initial trials, but it's going to be extremely important, especially now that we've seen the emergence of MISC, that we have more information on how some of these treatment regimens will do in the pediatric population. Thanks to both of you for raising those considerations. I'd like to move on now and pose this question to both of you. It has to do with masks, something that's top of mind for everyone. And should children be wearing them? I think children definitely should, especially children two years of age and older, because we know that even though they may not have a lot of symptoms, they can be infected with COVID-19 and they can spread it to other individuals. This was where it becomes important because a lot of times in these younger children, you cannot ensure social distancing measures. So I think it's important um, for them to be able to wear a mask in public settings. And, and there's no doubt we have learned more and more over this pandemic that masking has led to significant impact in preventing transmission. I think just within our own hospitals, we know that masking has limited the amount of transmission from healthcare workers mm -hmm. to other healthcare workers, suggesting that, you know, this is a great way that we can get back into our environment. So I think we're going to have to be very cognizant of that import as well as in children. Now, the practicality gets difficult as, you know, Dr. <laughs> Tana mentioned is like, you know, how do you get a three-year-old to social distance as well as how do you get them to wear masks? And I believe that we're going to have to be very strategic engineer uh, environments to where masks can be used at sometimes, but not the whole time. Cause we can imagine as how difficult even as adults wearing masks can be. And by doing this kind of combination of Masking when the social distancing is next to impossible to engineer and teaching our children the importance of that masking, teaching our children the importance of coughing into my elbow, you know, sneezing into my elbow, washing my hands effectively. This is a time for us to really teach a lot of important habits, including the mask. And, and lastly, as we think about this, certain children aren't going to be able to be masked. Those who can't remove the mask on their own, those who have 
problems with breathing. There are those instances where, again, we're going to have to think strategically, how do we protect them as well? A follow-up to that now, doctors. How do parents and child care facilities prepare for the social distancing concerns as states begin to open? If you look at child care facilities or daycare facilities or preschools, I think there really have to be other specific measures that are in place in order to ensure that the children that are attending the daycare preschool and the staff members are safe, especially in those situations where the children are too young to keep a mask on all the time or to social distance. As Dr. Newland brought up, they definitely have to really enforce good hand hygiene as well as good cough um, and sneeze etiquette. Staff should definitely be wearing masks most of the time. And if the children are able to, they should be wearing masks. The daycare, the preschool needs to invest in wiping down frequently touched surfaces on a very regular basis. They probably need to institute screening of their infants and children as well as staff members for signs of illness before allowing them into the facility. Maybe have the same staff member work with the same group of children, alternating playtime and nap time so that there's no large groups of children that are interacting with each other, and maybe alternate pick up and drop off time so that you don't have a lot of parents and a lot of other individuals in the same place at the same time where social distancing is not possible. Healthcare screening of our staff and our, our children and those coming in is essential uh, to, to limit people coming in sick. I think by doing that, you create a situational awareness, so to speak, among people coming that, look, you, it, it's no longer that you show up to any of these facilities with runny nose and cough. That is not the way we're going to operate as we go forward because we just can't do that. And number two, I just like to highlight the fact of this notion of keeping groups together. So one teacher has their group and the groups don't intermingle. The less we can do to intermingle people, the more likely we can handle if somebody happens to have COVID-19. And then lastly, wearing a mask should be the norm for any adult in that facility. That should be the norm. And it should not only be while you're with the children, but it should be in your break room when you're together and you think, oh, I have this moment of lapse. But we know that those are the moments likely when the transmission could occur as well. So that's, that would be the only thing I would add. Excellent points, doctors. Thanks to both of you. At this time, I'd like to address asymptomatic patients. Do you think that more younger people are infected and just don't know it, Dr. Tan? You know, especially in the teenage population, they basically feel like they're invincible and that this particular viral infection does not affect them. But we know that there are teenagers out there that are infected and they continue to basically not abide by social distancing and they basically are probably transmitting the infection to many of their contacts. As we start to test more, children and adolescents and infants will get a better sense of how much infection is out there, but definitely I think that there is much more infection out there than we know of, and we know that many teenagers and young adults are really not abiding by the social distancing and the masking that other people in the community are doing, and they are serving as a source of transmission, not only to their friends, but to other individuals in the community. Yes, and and the mild symptoms that occur, uh, and the fact that we just, our society is so used to um, kind of working and doing our things with, you know, symptoms like runny nose and cough, 
uh, there's no doubt that our children and adolescents and others, are, there's more disease than we've been aware of. And we're going to have to be on top of that as we move forward, uh, especially into the coming months as we discuss reopening of schools um, and doing other sorts of activities that have been the things that were used to happen in the fall. Doctors, I'd like to open the floor now for any final thoughts. What we know about COVID-19 and the pediatric population is evolving very rapidly. However, I do think that clinicians really need to be aware of the fact that um, infants and children, even though they may have few to some mild symptoms, need to be cognizant that this could represent COVID-19, and I think they need to evaluate them appropriately. I think that we have a major challenge in front of us as pediatricians to uh, put put forth what is going to be best for our children in the coming uh, months. We know the unintended consequences of social distancing might be having an even greater impact on our youth. We as pediatric infectious disease physicians, as pediatricians and others, we need to be thinking about what are going to be those strategies we put in place to allow these children, young adults, adolescents to have things or be able to do things that are going to benefit them going forward that is safe. And that's a challenge. Um, as mentioned by Dr. Tan already, you know, this notion of I'm invincible will need to be discussed and how do we continue to impart upon them that we want them to be, be able to experience the things, but in a safe manner. And that is going to be a challenge. And I, I look forward to us working on that challenge and also look forward to see what the story ends up being told. Great points from both Dr. Tan and Dr. Newland. At this time, I'd like to thank them both for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.